0: Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. So today I'm beginning the new series, A Greater Perspective. It's always based on the the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, let me begin by saying this. You know, people come up to me all the time and say, Pastor Mark, if I was going to read the Bible somewhere where I could really get condensed kind of information to grow spiritually real quick, where would I go? And I say, in the Old Testament, you'd go to the book of Proverbs. I mean, this is written by King Solomon. History's wisest man. He's got some good stuff to say in there. And a little tip on this, you know, you can read easily the whole book of Proverbs in a year and get a lot out of it by reading just three little tiny verses every day. You've done the whole thing in a year. And you know what? You will be the smartest person in the room after you've done that. Some of you might take two years, but you'll get there. Uh, (laughs) And in the New Testament, uh, the place to go would, of course, be the Sermon on the Mount. There is nothing like the Sermon on the Mount. It is considered the greatest sermon of all time, but not only that, the greatest discourse of all time. And that is Christians and non-Christians alike that would say that about the Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, the, the Hindu leader, uh, he, he called it the greatest uh, instruction and teaching of all time. He said, if I had to base my faith on one teaching, and it was the Sermon on the Mount, I would have to be a Christian. Interesting for a Hindu leader to make a comment like that. That's how powerful it is, because when you begin to read, study, and embody the Sermon on the Mount, you gain this greater perspective on life that has the power to change and transform your life. I absolutely guarantee it. So let me give you a little context of it because it's kind of interesting as part of the story. So we all know that Jesus grew up in the city of Nazareth. And uh, he grew up in this city and things were pretty normal. He was a you know carpenter's apprentice under his father Joseph. And then at 30, he finally moved out cuz his mom let him. And he, he moves out, and we know what happened. He went to see his cousin John the Baptist and he was on the east side of the Jordan. He was off in the wilderness, he was baptizing people. So Jesus gets water baptized at the age of 30. Then the scripture tells us that he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted of the devil. Then what he did his did not return to Nazareth. Now, he went back to Galilee, but he went to the city of Capernaum. Now, I think there was a reason why he did that, because that's where all his disciples came from. That became his headquarters for his ministry for the next three and a half years. And the reason he didn't go back to Nazareth was he had all those family and friends that knew who he was. I mean, let me ask you this question. How hard would it be for you to convince your brothers that you were the Messiah? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's going to be a tough one. And it was even a tough one for Jesus. So he goes to Capernaum where people don't really know him. And I'll uh, give you a little bit of a snapshot of it geographically. Here's a picture of it. And so there's the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, then uh, right there at the very, very top is the city of Capernaum. That's where Jesus set up camp. That's where his disciples came from. And then if you look just to the west, you see this place called Mount Beatitudes. So here's what happened. Jesus spent the early months of his ministry entirely up in the hills of Galilee. He was just going outside to villages and to hillsides and different things. And you've all read the, the, the stories. It says his fame went out everywhere. And multitudes came from everywhere. And I mean, his star was really rising. He had not gone down into Judea. He had not been down in Samaria. He was ministering exclusively in this region. And I'm telling you, he was killing it because they were coming out by the hundreds. They were coming out by the thousands. And it, he's moving in groups. And he's doing miracles. And he's doing healings and deliverances. And, of course, he's preaching the gospel. And the crowds continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, finally, they end up at this place. And I'll show you the picture of it. Uh, it's it's this is called the mount mount beatitudes and if you and if you go there we've been there the first thing you'll do is you'll see this catholic church at the very top of the mount now it's presumed this is where it took place we're not 100% sure but you can always rely on the catholics if there's a holy place in the holy land that's of significance they built a church on it so that's how you know how to find it right and it's it's eight-sided like the eight beatitudes and and so that's sort of cool and so then you see the, it's a beautiful picturesque place. You see the Sea of Galilee in the distance there. And then you see that slope there. And that would have been the slope in which Jesus preached this message. And he would have, you know, it says that he actually sat down. We'll get that to that in a moment. And most people always think that he would have stood at the top of that mountain and preached down the edge of it. Probably not. He probably sat at the bottom and preached up. See, aren't we used to... (laughs) pastors standing up and speaking down to people like I'm doing right now. You know, you know literally and figuratively, right? And, and so that's what we kind of do as preachers. But it's a natural amphitheater. And if you go there and you stand at the bottom and you speak without a microphone, people at the very top can hear you. And that's how Jesus managed to speak to 5,000 or 10,000 people or whatever it was. And so we have a little bit of a snapshot of this geographically what happened. Now, the big question is this. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, which undoubtedly you all have, it's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And at an average speed of reading, it will take you 15 minutes to get through the whole sermon. And I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question. How did Jesus manage to get the greatest sermon of all time and all the information in the Sermon on the Mount, how did he manage to get it down to 15 minutes? And the answer is, it was his TED Talk. That's what it was, right? (laughs) How many of you know what a TED Talk is? Yeah, you've seen them on on YouTube. There's 4,200 of them. And what they do is they get people, the smartest people around, and they give them, you may or may not know this, they have 18 minutes. That's the timeline. 18 minutes. Get it done in 18 minutes. And they have to sum up everything they know about whatever in 18 short minutes. The last one Bill Gates did, he did it in, in eight minutes, Uh, When Stephen Hawking did his a number of years ago, and he doesn't speak fast, doesn't speak at all, uses computer generated, it was 10 minutes long. Now, Pastor Rick Warren was asked to do one on the purpose-driven life. 21 minutes. He went three minutes over. Typical preacher. They don't know when to shut up, right? (laughs) Jesus manages to do his TED Talk in a mere 15 minutes. Right? I have a picture of it. Have you seen it? It's on YouTube. There it is. <laughs> and it looks so realistic, doesn't it? Now I'm going to break the bad news to you. The Sermon on the Mount was not 15 minutes long. The Sermon on the Mount that you read in the book of Matthew is Matthew's executive summary is what it is. He took the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm sure Matthew was good at recording things. He was a tax collector. So I'm pretty sure he knew how to record things and he was recording the most important details and he was giving us the, you know, the executive summary. And I'm sure that Jesus' sermon was peppered with jokes and funny stories, right? I mean, how many imagine Jesus that way? He's on the hills of Galilee. He's up there. He's like a stand-up comic. You know, he's got them just rolling on the hillsides, laughing their heads off. How many you imagine it like that? One person and me. (laughs) This is my imagination. I can imagine it however I want. So anyway, tough story. Matthew had to edit out the jokes and the funny stories, and he had to get it down to a mere 15 minutes. So I know you don't like that story, but that's the truth. That's what he had to have done. He had to redact this sermon, get it down to something that could be written. That's why you can't read it in 15 minutes and get everything you need from it. There's so much more than that. And, and of course, here's what I always think about. When, when you look and read the, what the scholars say about it, they figure this sermon probably took, are you ready for this? Three days. They figure he was on that mountain for three days teaching them all of the a- aspects and the nuances of the Sermon on the Mount. All we have is the executive summary. And so when I look at it that way, and, and you you know, some people give me grief about thirty-five minutes. Are you kidding me? I could be here for three days. Right <laughs> nobody's cheering there, nobody's hoping for that. But we're known to be a bit long-winded, you know that? I mean, it's it's like the story of this this pastor. He was known for his particularly long sermons. But halfway through his sermon, one of his elders gets up and leaves the building. And then at the very end of the service, right at the conclusion, the elder comes back. He goes up to him and he says, Abe, what's the deal? You walked out in the middle of my sermon. He said, I had to go get a haircut. He said, why didn't you do that before the service? He said, I didn't need one then. (laughs) You know, it's a long sermon. So here's what we're going to do. We uh, we can't possibly cover everything in the Sermon on the Mount, but I'll tell you what we have to do in these sessions, is we have to start with the preamble. And the preamble of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. It's part of it, it's important, it's the beginning, and it sets everything up. And if you miss that, this is going to be kind of a broad strokes message, if you miss the preamble and, and understanding what it's about, then you really miss the rest of the sermon. So we're going to jump into this. We're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, Pure in heart, rather, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I want you to look at this picture for a moment. Jesus' star has been rising. He's been out there several months. We don't know exactly how long. He's now got huge crowds and huge multitudes. I mean, he's on a roll. But Jesus had a bit of a habit of crashing his own party. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about what he just did here. He actually lures people in with cake and ice cream, and then he serves them broccoli and cauliflower. You say, what are you talking about? Well, the miracles and the healings and all that stuff. that was the cake and ice cream. That got people in. And that's why the crowds came. But then he gave them what they really needed, which was broccoli and cauliflower. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. I mean, you look at this stuff. Did you see the stuff he just said here? This is what he tells them. He says, blessed are, are the poor in spirit. And blessed are the mournful. And blessed are the meek. And he goes on and on. I mean come on, Jesus, where's the good stuff? Where's the good stuff? And he just sort of lays it out there. There's almost nothing sort of that appeals to your fleshly desires in this because that is not the essence of it. Now, if I was going to give one quick description of the Sermon on the Mount, this is what I would say about it. It is instructions in the counterintuitive principles of the kingdom of God that will transform your life to live a life less ordinary, to live a life that is completely beyond what our world can and does live. And every one of these principles is upside down. Every one of these principles is inside out. Almost every one of these principles is opposite to our human nature and how we would act and how we'd respond in a certain circumstances. I mean, think about what he tells us. It's all upside down. He says, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He says, the least shall be the greatest and the greatest shall be least. He says, less is more and more is less. He says, to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. He tells us to go the extra mile to give every, to everybody that asks. He tells us it's good when we're persecuted. It's bad when we're praised. And he commands us to forgive everybody all the time. Every single thing I just said there is completely, utterly, totally contrary to human nature. What you would normally do in a particular situation, that, my friends, is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you in the room have actually read my book, A Greater Perspective? How many of you have read it? Not very many of you. You know, you should all get it, read it. It's really good. (laughs) Trust me on this. It's going to be worthwhile. So those of you who haven't read it, I won't ruin the ending for you, but I'm going to ruin the beginning. So the introduction, I tell a story about a Seinfeld episode. The whole book is predicated on a Seinfeld episode. Now, you know I'm a big fan, or maybe you don't, but, uh, but I am. I've seen every episode of Seinfeld multiple times. And I talk about one particular episode. Let me go to the database. It's season five, episode 22, the opposite. And the story is George and Jerry, and they're sitting in Monk's coffee shop. And George says... Jerry, it's not working. He says, what's not working? He says, nothing, none of it's working. Every decision I've ever made and every instinct I've ever had has been wrong. And so Jerry says to him, and here's the shot from the scene, if every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. And so George says, that's it. I need to do the opposite. From now on, I'm going to do the opposite of what my instinct is, the opposite of of what I would normally do. And, of course, in the rest of the episode, he does the opposite, and guess what? He succeeds in everything he does. And it begins with him walking across the the coffee shop, and there's a a beautiful woman sitting at at the counter, and he turns to her and says, My name is George, I'm unemployed, and I live with my parents. (laughs) She says, hi, I'm Victoria. (laughs) That is not a great pickup line. That's why it's funny. That's a terrible pickup line. So he starts doing the opposite and things start to go his way. I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, Mark, you're comparing the Sermon on the Mount to a Seinfeld episode? I'm sorry. It's just how my brain works. It's just how it's got to be. So we need to go back for a moment To the Beatitudes. I said the Beatitudes were the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. And see, the Sermon on the Mount, I'll tell you what it is. It's instructions for life. It's what you ought to do and how you ought to live. But before he gives you the instructions as to what you ought to do, he tells you the Beatitudes, which is who you are meant to be. See, one, the Sermon on the Mount is behavior. The Beatitudes is character. And see, he doesn't want to be confused with the Pharisees because the Pharisees were all about what you were on the outside. It was all about your behavior and all about doing the right thing. And if you do this and do this and do this and do this, God will approve. And Jesus' message was the opposite. He says, no, no, it's not what you do, it's who you are. It's what comes out of the mouth, what not goes into the mouth, which defiles you. So he says the the Beatitudes is the character. This is the kind of person you are. And if you will become this kind of person, then you will be able to do all of the things that are in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you don't start with Beatitudes, if you don't start to embody the character of the Beatitudes, there's no way on God's green earth you're ever going to be able to do the principles of the Sermon on the Mount. Are you following this so far? So this is is the essence of it. It's about who we are. And the Beatitudes are interesting to me because they're not in random order. They actually are in a progression. And I call them the stairway to heaven, the Beatitudes. And they actually work up, and, and there's many scholars that would agree with that, that it's like a ladder going up. And it's not like Led Zeppelin's stairway to heaven, by the way. That's you, some of you guys are thinking about this wrong. And so there's the stairway to heaven. And the first rung, the first step in the stairway to heaven is to be poor in spirit. So poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungry, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, persecuted. These are the steps And you can't stop. start at the top. You don't start with being persecuted. You don't start with being merciful. You actually have to go down to the very bottom rung. And the very bottom rung is this. It is to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the beginning of the journey up the staircase to heaven. And every one of us has to start on the bottom rung. In the 6th century, there was an Eastern Orthodox monk that wrote this treatise called The Ladder of Divine Ascent. And he identified 30 rungs on a ladder. It was kind of like the ladder to heaven. 30 rungs to the heaven, sort of 30 steps to get to heaven. And in the 12th century, there was an artist who depicted it. And some of you have maybe seen it. Here's the picture of it. And so he's taking those 30 rungs on this ladder. And it's interesting just to look at it because you see these people and as they are going up the ladder, you can see they're getting brighter and whiter and they're becoming more enlightened. But they have this battle that's going on because they've got the saints cheering them on on one side and they've got demons trying to pull them off the ladder on the other side. How do you feel like you can relate to this a little bit? This is the journey of life. We have these forces trying to pull us down, and there's others that are trying to cheer us along. But here's where I'm comparing the two, and I'm not suggesting the ladder of divine ascent. What I want to point out is what the first rung is. The very first rung on the ladder of divine ascent is the renunciation of the world. And you see, that's what Jesus was talking about when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The very, very first step is we have to be willing to step up on that one step and say this, that I am spiritually broken and bankrupt. There is nothing good that dwells within me. I am completely helpless and hopeless without God. That is what poor in spirit means. It has nothing to do with money. has everything to do with that inner being able to look into the inner man and say there's something desperately broken within me and i'll tell you something if you think about this any of you who've ever been involved in 12-step programs like aa and and narcotics anonymous and those they all they all go the same way step one what's step one anybody know To admit that you are powerless against your addiction and your life has become unmanageable, poor in spirit. And the second step is to recognize that there is a power greater than yourself. And the reason those steps work, are you ready for this? Is because the founders of AA based them on the Sermon on the Mount. And some of you know the history of it. You can go read about it. It's quite fascinating. It was in the 1930s. There was these two men, Bill Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith, and they were Christian alcoholics. It's a thing these two Christian alcoholics, and they got together and they said, what can we do to help people get free of their addiction? And I don't know if you've seen th- this coin, but that depicts uh, Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith. And you get these coins as you manage to, every year you get a medallion, sort of recognizing you've been one year free, two year free, three year free. But here's a lot of people don't know this part of the story, that Bill Smith and, and Dr. Bob, he always called himself Dr. Bob, they actually began this thing based on the Sermon on the Mount, and they realized that only the Beatitudes was going to allow people to get free from this. And there's this great story that in the very first meeting and, and the meetings that ensued after that, uh, Dr. Bob he, w- he went and he took a, a dining room chair and he stuck his foot on the first rung. Don't miss the symbolism in, in this. He put his foot on the first rung, and then he turned to the group and he said, "My name is Dr. Bob, and I am an alcoholic." And then he proceeded to read the entire Sermon on the Mount. And every time he led a meeting, he read the Sermon on the Mount because he understood it was only by the power of the gospel that people were going to be able to get free. And it's a matter of recognizing who we are, that we are poor in spirit. And I want to say it again. There's a big difference between poor and being poor in spirit. I know Luke said, blessed are the poor. But the better, better version of it is, is Matthew's, where he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And Jesus illustrates it in a very famous story. And he says, two men, it's in Luke chapter 18. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. And one was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And he says, and the Pharisee prayed thus to himself. You know, when you're praying to yourself, you're probably in trouble right from the get-go. And he prayed thus to himself, Lord, I thank you that I am not an extortioner, a sinner, an adulterer. And then he points and says, or like this tax collector. And then the tax collector prayed. And it says he did not even lift up his eyes, but he beat his breast. And he said, have mercy on me, Lord, for I am a sinner. And then Jesus asked this question. It says, which one of these men went up to his house justified? And I say to you, it was the tax collector. Why? Because he was poor in spirit. Now, I want to point something out to you. Neither of these men were poor. They were both wealthy men. The Pharisee was wealthy. The tax collector for sure was wealthy. But the difference was he became poor in spirit. Internally, he was poor. See, people are so confused about this because Jesus, after the rich young ruler walked away And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, how hard it is for a rich man to get into heaven. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. And then his disciples said, well, Lord, who can be saved? And Jesus said, "Ah, with man, it's not possible. But with God, all things are possible. What was he saying? He was saying the problem with the rich is the rich have an attitude. And the rich, it's not, it's not a matter of whether they're rich or not. That's not the point. The attitude, the spirit of the rich is the problem because they're self-centered and they're selfish and they're narcissistic. Like, they don't think they need God. And that's why rich people don't go into the kingdom of heaven. And the tax collector, he humbled himself and he became poor of spirit and he went down to his house justified. There's a little verse in the book of Proverbs going back to Solomon's wisdom. A little verse, Proverbs 18 verse 23. This is from the Berean translation. It says, a poor man pleads for mercy, but a rich man answers harshly. Now, if you just read that, you might miss the essence of what he's talking about. And he's, he's, he's talking about rich and poor people and how they act. But I want you to think about the spirit of the rich man and the spirit of the poor man. See, the rich man answers harshly. Why? Why? Because he's rich and he feels superior to other people and he feels like somehow that he has achieved more in life than others and he looks down at other people and you will see they often speak harshly. You've seen it. They bark orders at people and they yell at people and they think it's okay for them to just go off on people because they have made their way and they're rich and that's the spirit of the rich man. But the spirit of the poor man, that's different because they don't have that credibility in this world so they have to plead for mercy. They have to beg for mercy. And it's exactly what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that that first step, you've got to get that first step. And, you know, all the other steps will follow in line. But if we don't get that first step where we become poor in spirit, we are in so much trouble and you have to take on the, the spirit of the poor man. So I want to illustrate this with a story it happened to me 40 years ago. I was just new in, in ministry I was a young guy and uh, I was an associate pastor at a church. And our pastor was holding this conference. And at this conference, they were bringing in a big-name prosperity preacher from the U.S. Now, the conference had already started, and in the evening meetings, our pastor was running them, and this preacher was flying in from the U.S., and so he asked me to go pick him up. Otherwise, he would have done it. And so I drove down there in my little Honda Civic, and I pulled up, and I picked him up, and I'll never forget it, never forget it. He came out in his three-piece suit, and he came out, and he looked at my car, and he said, is that your car? And I said, y- Yeah, yeah, it's it's my car. I have, I have another vehicle, but it's a bicycle, and this one holds more people. And <laughs> you know, I've always been a smart aleck. It's the little gift that God gave me that He's not taking away from me, and He says I can keep it if I like. I'm very grateful. And, and so, so anyway, he gets. you can see he's, you can see he's disgusted with my car. So he, so he gets into my car and immediately starts talking about his car. He says, you know, I got a brand new car and I made a big mistake in buying that car. I bought a black Cadillac with black leather interior in that Texas sun. That, that interior gets so hot, you can't even sit in it. I said, that's why I went with the eight-year-old Honda with the cloth seats. It's always comfortable. <laughs> so so we 're so we're driving along we 're coming back on, on Route 90, and then he asked me this bizarre question. He says, so, "So where do the wealthy people live in this city?" And I said, "What?" He says, "Where do the wealthy people see? Maybe we, maybe we could go see where they live. We could drive by some houses." I said, oh, I, I guess I could do that. I mean, we're going down Route 90, down Canister, and I'm going right by Wellington Crescent. So I said, well, we could, go, we could go to the hotel this way. So I turned down Wellington Crescent, I'm going down Wellington, and I'm showing him all those houses along the Assiniboine River, and he's looking at them, and he turns to me. He says, you have no idea how I love those kind of houses. And I'm thinking to myself, no, I think I'm getting a pretty good idea here <laughs> how much you love this kind of stuff. So dropped him out at the hotel. The next morning, we met him at 7 o'clock in the morning. We were going to have breakfast with him. And uh, by this time, his, fall, his star is already losing a bit of its shine to me. But anyway, we met him. And so it was my pastor, myself, and another pastor, and this, this TV preacher, prosperity guy. And so we're, we're in the restaurant, and we all order our meals. And uh, he, he, he ordered bacon and eggs. And uh, when the meal came, he turned to the waitress, and he said, Listen, sweetheart, I told you over easy. These eggs are hard. You send them back. This is not rocket science, sweetheart. And he sends his meal back. He just just ripped into her. He really chewed her out. And so she took the meal and took it back. And my eggs were, you know, the opposite. They were runny. I should have given him mine. But anyway, I didn't say anything. I'm going to eat them. So, so anyway, he was so mean to her and so harsh with her the whole time. And then at the end of the meal, he turns to my pastor and says, don't you dare give that woman a tip. She didn't earn a tip today. So my pastor, you know, wanting to honor this guy, doesn't give, doesn't give the waitress a tip. And, uh, and so we went out and I was feeling so uncomfortable because the whole time, guess what we're talking about? Guess what we're talking about in that restaurant? We're talking about Jesus and we're talking about the church and we're talking about the gospel. And you know what? Preachers talk in a loud voice. I don't know if you know that. They have no indoor voices. And we're talking and talking about Jesus and talking about the church. And then we're treating this woman with absolute disrespect and uh, such a lack of kindness, I couldn't believe it, I was so embarrassed, I thought, I live in this city, and I come to this restaurant, and this is my gospel that is getting misrepresented here, and I was so uncomfortable, we got in the car, and I was sitting there, I thought, I can't just leave it like this, and all of a sudden, I had an idea, and I said, can you guys wait just a second, I forgot something in the restaurant, you know what I forgot? A little human decency and kindness is what I forgot. Forgot to give this woman a tip and we forgot to present the love of the gospel. That's what we forgot. So I went back into the restaurant and looked at my wallet on my way. I've got $15. So I pull out the $15. I went and found the, 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 the uh, waitress and I said to her, you know what? You're really going to have to forgive my friend. I think he forgot to take his meds this morning. <laughs> I had to give some excuse. I made it up. And I said, you're going to have to forgive me. I just apologize for how he treated you. He had no busy business treating you like that. And I said, I'm not sure if they tipped you or not. So the, I, they sent me in with the tip. And so here's the tip. And we just want you to know that Jesus loves you. And, and don't judge the church by what you see that moron doing. <laughs> And I remember my experience, this was my first experience with some sort of big shot preacher like this. And I remember, this is 40 years ago, do the math. I'm just new in ministry. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't ever want to be that guy. I don't ever want to be that guy. I I never want to have the spirit of the rich man. You see, you begin the journey being poor in spirit, and that's where you stay. You remain poor in spirit. And that's how you get everything that God is trying to give you by recognizing that you are nothing and he is everything. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't ever want to be that guy. And I know I've failed many times. You've probably seen me do it. I know I've been harsh with people. I know I've been like the rich man from time to time in being harsh. But I work at it really hard. And I think sometimes I've I've sort of overcompensated. I think it's the reason I never bought a black Cadillac. Do you know that? I've never bought one, never going to. And I think it was the reason why I drove that 15-year-old white van that I drove around. And people used to point and laugh and say, why are you driving that? I think I was overcompensating. I think the whole time I'm thinking, I don't ever want to be that guy. But I know I have my moments. And I want to just end with this little story about how easy it is to fall into this. So some of you know that from time to time we go and we do these tours, and we usually go out west and we go to cities like Edmonton, Calgary, and, you know, Vancouver, and different places, and, and Derek and the gang and the musicians, and we put on a kind of a show, like kind of the Easter show. We often dress in costumes, and we do secular music, and then I preach, and we have a lot of fun with it. And uh, you probably don't know this, because around here I'm kind of like, hey you, but when I go on the road and we do these tours, I'm really Something. I am, really, I am really something. Let me tell you. And people will people line up, line up to see me. Sometimes dozens and dozens of people, and they'll stand in line for a half an hour just so they can shake my hand and I, so I can give them an autograph or take a selfie with them. And you know what I'm thinking the whole time? This is not real life, Mark. So don't let it go to your head. You are nothing special, trust me, and I have to remind myself this is not real, this is not life, this is not who I am. And I'm I'm gonna honor these people by, by doing with this this with them, but I need to remind myself I'm nothing special. So anyway, this particular week we're in, we're in Calgary and uh, we were using the, the theater down, the movie theater downtown. We had it for the morning. It was a big, beautiful movie theater. We had, you know, four or 500 people that particular day. It was great. And uh, we had it till noon. And then at noon it was opening up for the movie theater for, for the afternoon. And so the meeting's done and I've got this huge lineup of people and I'm shaking hands and I'm you know kissing women and slapping babies and doing all the stuff you do you know and I'm doing (laughs) I'm doing all that stuff and I finally get through the line it was at least 30 or 40 minutes I finally got through the line and then I looked and there was one woman still standing there and I thought oh I got one more woman so I walked over to her I said so so you're the last one Appreciate you waiting this long. And she's just looking at me, a little confused at first. And I said, so where are you from? And she's talking about where she's from. And, and I said, so uh, have you been waiting long? Did you enjoy the show? She said, how would I know I'm still standing in line to go see the movie, and I have no idea who you are? <laughs> <laughs> it was such a humbling moment. <laughs> and then I remember thinking to myself, note to self, you are nothing special. <laughs> you were just standing in some woman's way trying to go to a, a movie. And I, I always remember that moment because it's so easiest for us to get caught up in this, that we are really something because at the end of the day, we are nothing. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that we are completely destitute without God. And without him, we can do nothing and be nothing. And when we will embrace that, and when we will become poor in spirit, and we will remain there, we Don't just remain there because we move through this journey of transformation to become everything that God said we could be and the principles of the Sermon on the Mount begin to pour out of us and our life becomes this transformational experience as we begin to live and look at the life in a brand new way as a greater perspective. Let's stand together, shall we? All right, we're going to take a moment here today. I want to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would. Because I know there's people in this room that are at that first step. You're at the first rung. And you realize that today, that that's the step you need to take. That you need to embrace the fact that spiritually you are broken. It's not something to be insulted by every single one of us has been there or need to be there. And what we do every service in this church is we invite people onto this journey to I- I invite Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior. And if you don't know him, if you don't know you're on this stairway to heaven, if you haven't begun that journey, and you don't know where life's going to lead you in the end, we want to give you that opportunity today. And we're not going to single you out. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm not going to ask you to say anything publicly. But if you're thinking today, that's me, I need to take that first step. I need to acknowledge my need for a greater power and that greater power is Jesus. And if that's you today, I just want you to slip up your hand. I won't call you forward. Nobody's looking around. Just take a moment and slip up your hand. Let me see it. There's hands popping up around the room. I want to talk to some other people here. You knew him once in the past and you slipped away and you need to go back to that first step. And you know you're no longer walking with him. And if that's you, I want you to slip up your hand. Again, won't call you forward, but you do need to acknowledge that. Great, fantastic. You can all lower your hands. So let's do this. I said I wouldn't single anybody out, so we're all going to pray together. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. And I come to that cross as a broken and destitute person, poor in spirit. Recognizing that without you, there's no good in me. And today I invite you into my life to be my Lord, to be my Savior. I recognize that you rose from the dead on the third day and you forever live to be my Lord. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Today I'm a new creation in Christ and I've begun my journey on the stairway to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.